0: Good morning. It's good to see you. My name's Steve Murphy. I'm one of the ministers here. Thanks for joining us here at Discover. Whether you're here in the room or you're checking us out online, we're glad that you're with us. Um, just real quick, we haven't done this for a while, and uh, it's not in the notes. But everybody, just hang cool. Um, we're just going to take literally 15 seconds—not 30, not a minute. We're going to take 15 seconds to stand up, stretch, and say hello to someone near you. All right? So, ready? Go. <clears throat> All right, that was 15 seconds. Go ahead and have a seat. Hey, uh, this month we're doing a series um, called Questions That Keep You Awake at Night and Answers That Can Bring You Rest. So uh, last week we talked about if God is good and powerful, then why does evil exist? If you didn't check that out, again, just encourage you to go online and uh, listen to that message next week we have a real privilege Um, dr johnny presley from cincinnati christian university is going to be here with us and he's going to answer any questions that you have about god so any question at all um, you can send it in to uh, toughquestions2017 at gmail.com or on the back of your connection card that's in your bulletin you can just write your question and pop it in uh, one of the attendance or one of the uh, offering boxes and uh, we'll get that so again uh, your questions, any question you have, um, Dr. Presley is going to try to answer that next week. And again, in this series, we're not pretending like there are just e- easy, simple, bumper sticker kind of answers um, to these questions, but what we're trying to do is provide a framework from which we can um, just study more and grow more and, and learn more about God. So that brings us to today's question, which is this Why does God seem different in the Old Testament? In the New Testament. Now, uh, I would just like for you, if you've ever wondered this, to raise your hand. Be really honest, okay? Wow. Those of you who aren't raising your hands are either liars or you haven't read the Bible. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not fair. Um, your faith is just bigger than mine. I ask this question. I do. I'm like, why does it seem like God is like this in the Old Testament? He's like this in the New Testament. Why does it seem that way? So, but before we jump into it, um, I was walking through Meyer the other day and uh, um, we are sponsored by Coppertone Sports, so I have to get this in here. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so uh, um, I was walking through Meijer, and I saw this, and it says new. And it's always interesting to see those products. They're new and improved somehow, right? Half the time, it seems like they changed the box and, and made the content smaller. But anyway, all right, new. But what, it, what this said was interesting. It says lighter, breathable feel. Which is good. I'd like that in a sunscreen, right? You don't want it to be all like blah, blah, oppressive and stuff. But uh, lighter, breathable feel. And, it, and I thought, oh man, that is just perfect for what we're talking about this week. Because when we think of, of God in the New Testament compared to the Old Testament, we think God is lighter. You know, God 2.0 is better because God's lighter and it's easier for me to breathe in, uh, in the New Testament context than the Old. Um, and that sort of feels that way. Um, it's this new, improved version 2.0 of God. But is that true? Is God different in the New Testament than God is in the Old Testament? Well, there's some really good news. We don't have to try to figure this out on our own. The Word of God, which is God revealing himself to us, lets us know who God is. And It not only lets us know who God is, the Bible lets us know who we are in context of God, in context of others, in context of this planet, in context of eternity. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at like 16 Bible verses, but we're going to do it kind of as a quiz. So the goal is we'll we'll read a passage, and then before we read the passage, it um, well, I want you to just think, is that from the Old Testament or is that from the New Testament? Okay? So here we go. We'll start off uh, with this first one. I almost said where it's from. All right. Uh, during this period, Joshua destroyed all the descendants of Anak who lived in the hill country of Hebron, Debir, Anab, and the entire hill country of Judah and Israel. He killed them all and completely destroyed their towns. So Joshua took control of the entire land just as the Lord had instructed Moses. He gave it to the people of Israel as their special possession, dividing the land among the tribes. So the land finally had rest for more. So Old Testament or New Testament, that one is Old Testament. All right, that's from the book of Joshua. Let's try another one. Um, You may have heard this one before. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Old Testament, New Testament, that one's New Testament. John 3, 16 and 17. And those are the words of Jesus, right? So, so far this makes all kinds of sense, right? Old Testament, wrath, people being killed. New Testament, God providing Jesus through his grace. All right, let's do another one. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life but remains under God's angry judgment. Okay, well, that's New Testament, and that's also Jesus who's speaking. All right, let's try this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, that could be New Testament, but that clue is the I am the Lord part. This was actually from the Old Testament. First time this is heard is in the book of Leviticus. Here's another one. God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. New Testament, Romans chapter 1. You have heard the law that says, the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. New Testament, that's Jesus. And again, okay, that one we've heard a lot. That one makes sense. How about this one? He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Wow, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's grace. Old Testament, Psalm 103. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into, the, into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. <clears throat> Doesn't that sound like an Old Testament prophet, right? I mean, it's like powerful and like judgment and do these horrible things to your body so you, you don't enter into hell? Wow. Well, that was Jesus in Mark and other places in the Gospels. By the way, Jesus is not saying to literally gouge your eye out, cut your hand off, and cut your foot off. So don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's saying sin is really, really important, and you should try to do everything you can to avoid it. All right, moving on. Uh, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness, With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Well, that is an Old Testament prophet. Zephaniah 3.17. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. Old Testament, Psalm 146. The master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant in pieces and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants but isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions will be severely punished. Pretty harsh, Jesus. Luke chapter 12. For no one is abandoned by the Lord forever, Though he brings grief, he also shows compassion because of the greatness of his unfailing love. For he does not enjoy hurting people or causing them sorrow. Lamentations 3. A book about sorrow talks about the idea that God does not want to have us as sorrowful people. Then the king will say to those on his, or turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, cursed ones into the eternal fire prepared for for the devil and his demons, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. New Testament, Matthew chapter 25, and again, those are the words of Jesus. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not know love, start over. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That sure sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? It is. Okay, it is First John 4, 7, and 8, if you remember that song from way back in the 30s. All right. Uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, <clears throat> the high schoolers are going, oh, yeah, you are that old. All right. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? New Testament. Very last book, Revelation. One more. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Now, were you surprised by any of those verses? See, the reality is that God does not change. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So because of God's goodness, because of his goodness, Old Testament and New Testament were not destroyed. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So God is the same eternally, always has been, always will be the same. In the Old Testament, there are examples of war and genocide and destruction. There, A man whose uh, who sins is taken and killed, and so is his wife, so are his children, and so are his animals. God wipes out everyone except Noah and his family in a flood. Joshua is told to destroy the entire city of Jericho except for Rahab and her family. In the New Testament, Jesus says you should love your enemies. You should pray for those who persecute you. And if someone hits your face, you should turn the other side to them so they can hit it too. And God's grace and love are very tangible, especially in verses like we read, John 3.16. But also in the New Testament, Jesus calls the religious leaders snakes. He flips tables over because he's mad twice twice. Paul says he wishes some of the men who think circumcision is necessary would just go all the way and, quote, emasculate themselves. And people who reject the good news of Jesus are going to spend eternity without God in a place of torment. In the Old Testament, we also see that God sings over us, as we noted. The city of Nineveh is spared, even though the guy who took the message didn't want it to be spared. The prophet Jonah didn't want those people to be spared. He was concerned that God was too merciful, and God was. And foreigners are welcomed, and they're called to be treated the same way as people who were native-born Jews. Multiple times in the Old Testament, it says that God is, is compassionate, and he's gracious, and he's slow to anger, and he is abounding in love. And again, the very first time we hear this command to love your neighbor as yourself is in the Old Testament. So if that's the case, why does God seem, underlined, seem different in the Old Testament and the New Testament? If God is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament and he doesn't change, and that is true, then why does it seem that way? Well, it's fair to say that in the Old Testament, the, the emphasis, if you will, is on the law. And in the New Testament, the emphasis is on grace. So what's going on here? Well, th- again, this is a huge question, and it's not easy for us to answer simply, but we'll try to give a few things that might help us see some things. First of all, God is vast, and there the entire Bible is necessary to understand who God is as He has revealed Himself to us. And again, we only understand the part that God has revealed to us. He is much more mysterious even than what we understand. It's important to understand that when you see things, uh, various aspects of God's nature, that they aren't contradictory, they're complementary. Every illustration breaks down, but this one's reasonably good. You've probably heard about the, the blind people who first encountered an elephant. and one uh, attached to the tail, and one was checking out one of the legs. Another was looking at an ear well, well, not looking, but hanging out uh, with the ear. If they were blind. So um, that was kind of funny, but maybe not. So anyway, uh, they were, you know, examining the ear. Another person was examining the trunk. And another person was examining the tusk. And they began to describe this thing that they were encountering. And they all thought, you're crazy. That's not at all what this is. And all of them were correct, but all of them were incomplete. It's the same thing in a certain respect with God. There are various aspects of God's nature, and and you can't look at just one part and say, this is who God is. It takes the entire picture. And again, God is much more uh, grand and much more mysterious, much more wonderful than his creation, the elephant, which is also mysterious and grand and wonderful, but God is so much greater. It's a little bit like when Paul says, you know, right now I am basically looking into a cloudy mirror, But eventually, when I'm with God forever, I will see Him face to face, and a lot of these mysteries will disappear. So we don't fully understand everything about God, but don't grab one part and say that's all of who He is. Basically, in a general sense, God reveals Himself to us in various eras. So first, we had creation, and God was the creator, the powerful Lord, and then sin entered the world. And, and that's when we understand the difference between who God is and who people are. God is holy. And in the Old Testament, God brings the law and says, this is what you have to live up to. You have to be perfect. You have to keep all of this if you want to be in my presence, because I'm holy. And so uh, the, the, the Old Testament reveals this, this just holy side of God. The, the Old Testament is also about the birth of a nation, Israel, and how that nation needs to be protected, how it needs to be pure, how it needs to be preserved. And when you think about uh, the birth of our nation, when we were born, it was born out of pain, right? And, and it was very fragile in the beginning, and that's exactly what's happening with this nation of Israel. When it is birthed, it still happens today. One of the most recent nations in our world is South Sudan. And the same kinds of things are happening there. Also in the Old Testament, um, the representation of God is Israel. And so the, the call for purity and holiness is very, very strong because God is identifying himself to the world through this nation. And he's saying, This is who I am, so you have to be like this as well. And another thing about this nation of Israel is that when God will enter the world physically, he will do that through this line of people, through the Jewish nation. And though none of the people in that line were perfect, God's desire was to keep that line pure and to keep that line protected. And so that was very important. So that was another part of what's happening in the Old Testament. When Jesus is born, he comes again through that line. And when he is born, we have what what we call now the New Testament or the New Covenant. God has a new new way of revealing himself to us. And it's not that the law is gone. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And so the law is complete um, through Jesus And God pours out his grace to us. Because God's holiness and his justice has not changed at all, at all, at all. It has simply revealed the problem that we have, that we need to be perfect. And since we can't, Jesus comes and he, the perfect son of God, dies for us. The imperfect people. And as the New Testament continues, the the church is born and the message of Jesus begins to go out from uh, the Jewish people only in Jerusalem to a wider area of of geography and also to a wider population. People who are non-Jewish begin to have faith in Jesus. And we're still in that era today. We are in the era of the church when, when the message of Jesus is going out to the very Most unreached parts of the earth and the good news, the the truth spoken in love has implications of hope for every person, spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally. And the church era will continue until Jesus returns, which we sang about earlier. And that will usher in for us what will seem like eternity, although eternity has always gone backwards as well. Uh, But it'll be this new age and people will either live forever with God or they'll live forever away from God. Now here's how all of this impacts us. God's unchanging nature connects with the unchanging spiritual reality that every person faces. This reality is true for every single person who has ever walked on the planet. And it begins with this, sin. Sin is deadly serious. In the Bible, again, it says that God is holy. And when the Bible repeats something, it really tries to make a point. Like Jesus would say, I'm telling you the truth. Truly, truly, I say this to you. There's only one place where we have this trifecta, the holy, holy, holy nature of God. God is set apart, set apart. Set apart. God is different, different, different from anyone or anything. So God is holy and we are not. God cannot be in the presence of anything that is unholy. It's why Lucifer and the others were were cast out, it's why Adam and Eve were banished, it's why we are separated from God because of our sin. Our sin makes us unholy, and it's a deadly, serious problem. In the book of James, chapter 1, it says this When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desire, evil desire, and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. A lot of times we think that sin is kind of like doing the wrong thing against the rules that God has established. And it, it includes that, but it's, it's more. It's, it's deeper. It's more problematic, to be honest. Someone said, is it, is it harder for God to forgive my sin or forgive my sins? And if you think of it in as in a, a one singular sin versus sins, you know, like singular versus plural, then it seems like the answer would be to forgive my sins because there's more of them. But the idea here isn't that God is forgiving sins, whatever the multiples are of that. Um, it's the idea of forgiving the nature of sin, which is much deeper and, again, much more problematic. See, our, our true nature, when we are separated from God, when we don't have God's presence, when we don't have the Holy Spirit, when we live for our selfish desires, we are prone to be in that camp of sin. It's called our sinful nature. Tim Keller writes this in his book called The Reason for God. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from God. Kierkegaard asserts that human beings were made not only to believe in God in some general way, but to love Him supremely, center their lives on Him above anything else, and build their very identities on Him. Anything other than this is sin. So, sin is deadly serious. Sin separates us from God, it breaks our relationship with Him. And that relationship can be made whole, but a payment has to be made for that to take place. When we sin, we are separated from God, so we're on the outside looking in, if you will. Think of um, a major concert, like you know, a a huge concert that's coming, or the Super Bowl, something like that. To to get into this concert, to get into the Super Bowl, you can't just walk up and say, "Hey, I'd, I'd like to get in." Everything cool? Uh, you kind of have to provide proof of admission, right? You have to have to provide a ticket. And uh, those aren't going to be cheap for these major things. Uh, Super Bowl tickets, very commonly, we're going for over $4,000 a piece at this last Super Bowl, which is kind of high, it seems to me. That's a pretty high price to pay, it feels like. I don't know. But uh, you can't, again, you can't just walk in. You have to provide this proof of admission. And the problem is, No matter what we do, we cannot pay the price that needs to be paid, even though payment must be made. And Romans 6.23 says this, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a payment that has to be made, and the payment that we have for what we've done is death. So something has to change. Something has to happen for us to have admission. Again, we're on the outside looking in. We can't pay the price. No matter how hard we try, we can't be perfect, try as we may. We can try to earn God's favor, but we can't. The reality is that all of us have earned death, eternal separation from God, and that's what we deserve. In Romans 3.23 You've heard this probably. Uh, It's not our favorite verse. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So again, the idea is the contrast between us and God. We fall short of God's glory. We miss the mark is literally what this illustration is about sin. And so because of God's holiness and perfection, we can't pay the price. This is God's nature because he is glorious, he is perfect, he is holy, he is flawless, he's peerless, he's incomparable, he's unsurpassed, he's unsurpassable. That's who God is. But God is also forgiving and compassionate, merciful, gracious. God's full of unparalleled, unconditional, never-ending prodigious love. These two things have to be reconciled, God's justice and God's mercy. God's nature is completely just. Again, everyone deserves death and separation from God because he is just and holy and he can't be around sin. But because of God's great mercy... He provides the way for us to be redeemed. He provides the payment that we couldn't pay. And at this intersection of God's justice and God's mercy, God nails himself. He places himself at the intersection and pays the price that must be paid. See, Jesus can pay the price, and Jesus did pay their price because of his love. 1 John 2.2 2, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus provides the payment for every single person who has ever walked on the planet and places their faith and trust in him. It doesn't matter how hard you try, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what things you try to do, you can't earn God's grace. You can't earn God's favor. You can't earn God's forgiveness. But it's also just as true that no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, you can't outrun God's grace and his outpouring of mercy and forgiveness if you'll just receive it. God's justice requires that a price must be paid, but God's mercy provides that payment himself. And life is offered and we get to choose. When Jesus came the first time, he entered the world as a helpless baby. He was literally placed in a place where animals would hang out? I mean, seriously, if, if you had a question about Jesus and you said, were you born in a barn, he could answer yes. Yes, I was. Although he, you would never have a reason to question him that way, but it, I mean, he really was. <clears throat> when Jesus comes the next time, he's not coming as a, a baby who is helpless. He's coming as a powerful God, the powerful God. In Revelation chapter 19, it says about Jesus, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. who comes the first time bringing the mercy of God, but when he comes the next time, he brings the justice of God. And again, our hope is because he has paid the price that we couldn't pay. And because of God's great mercy, he is waiting for people to choose. Earlier we saw what Jesus himself said in John chapter three, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. Each person who hears the good news gets to choose: life or wrath. And if you've never done so today, you can choose life. Recognize that God's holy nature requires the perfection of Jesus would cover you because in your own strength in your own holiness. It's not possible. So you can embrace life, not only life abundantly here on earth, but life forever today. So after we take communion, uh, we would just ask that you would come forward, uh, and I'll be up here in the front. You can just find me, and you can choose life. We can talk about what that means, and pray about it, and uh, do whatever steps are necessary as you would follow God fully and believe in Jesus and place your faith and trust in him. And if you've already made that commitment, that choice, then you get to say thank you to God and praise him and make the commitment to take that good news to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your fellow students, to family members, to whoever is in your circle so that they have the opportunity to choose life. Each week we share uh, what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And it's important to know that Jesus is the one who serves this meal. He is the host. And he invites everyone who has placed their faith and trust in him to receive the bread and the cup His body and blood poured out for us. His sacrifice is the place where justice and mercy meet. And there are uh, four stations in the back at the tables, and there are four stations here up front. And today we would just ask that you would come and and take the bread and dip it in the the cup. And uh, if you are unable to do that, if you would just ask someone near you to do that and bring you a piece of the bread dipped in the cup I'm sure they would be happy to do that. And as we do this today, um, we remember God's justice and mercy and their intersection and the price that Jesus paid for each of us because of his love. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are 100% just and that you are 100% merciful. And we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus at the intersection of of law and grace, of, of justice and mercy, which gives us hope for forgiveness and restoration. In his name we pray, amen.